it's really nice to meet you guys. Um, Rona, can you grab that chair in the back for me? Yeah, so I, uh, I'm Pastor Aaron, and um, for how many of you guys, it's your first time here, actually? First time? Okay. Uh, <laughs> people are like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, just leave it right there. It's really nice to meet you guys. I'm, I uh, started a workout routine um, yesterday. And uh, was it yesterday? It was yesterday. We have um, one of our church members in our Pusan church plant. She's a physical trainer. So I messaged her the other day to help me train my physicalness. And she uh, wrote out this whole workout plan. So I worked out, and I'm in so much pain right now. Seriously, like it took me forever to get here. And I need, so if I just sit randomly in the middle of the message, like I apologize in advance, but like my whole body is is in a lot of pain. Um, I'll introduce myself. Um, I'm from New York. I was born and raised. Uh, I've been in Korea for about seven years now. And uh, I originally came out here to teach English um, and to sort of start new and, you know, walk away from a really... Um, pretty bad, dark past, which I had back in New York. And uh, I came to Korea. My plan was to be here for about a year. And I ended up finding the church that I now pastor alongside my husband. And I met him at church. Uh, we got, we dated. Uh, six months, got engaged. I know, he didn't wait. And we got married. And we've been married for about five years now. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, since then, since being married, uh, I took over this college ministry, which is something that he was in charge of initially. Uh, but he became the lead pastor of the church. I became the college director and later joined him as a co-lead pastor a couple of years down the line. And so I'm really glad to be here with you guys at SNU. Uh, and yeah, it's just a blessing. It's always a blessing to come here. Uh, just out of curiosity, which one, uh, which of you guys are actually exchange students here? Okay, exchange students. Where are you guys from? Australia. Okay, where in Australia? Perth. Yeah, Perth. Okay, awesome. It's nice to meet you. And what about you? Sydney. Oh, man, there's so many Aussies. Okay, Sydney. And yourself? Singapore. Ah, that's awesome. So then I'm assuming um, most of you guys are then four-year students at SNU? Yeah? Okay, cool. Uh, I know some of you guys aren't students at SNU. It's okay. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter. We're just glad that you're here. Uh, so, okay. Uh, this one is so noisy, too. All right, I'll try. I'll try to keep that in. Okay, uh, so I'm just going to go right into the message because I think it might be a little bit of a long one, so I need you guys to stay with me. Uh, normally, I preach pretty short messages, but you guys are in luck today because I got a good long one for you guys, okay? Um, so I want you guys to open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be looking at chapter 10, uh, verses 19 to 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 25. Uh, I have the ESV version. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what version of the Bible you have. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read one verse. I'm going to ask you guys to read the following, and we'll just go back and forth until the last verse, okay? So I'll start in 19. We're going to end in verse 25. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Okay. The book of Hebrews, a lot of you guys may know this book as the book of faith, right? It has, uh, in the next chapter 11, it has kind of like, I don't know, I guess the who's who of faith in scripture. And generally, the first all the way to the chapter we're reading currently is talking about who Jesus is, okay? So this book is actually one of the meatiest, richest books uh, in the New Testament, it can be a little bit daunting, intimidating uh, when you read it initially because it just um, has a lot of theology in it. Uh, but there is a lot to take from this book. And so I'm just going to read a little bit of the blurb that my Bible has that introduces Hebrews because I think it gives a good background. Uh, the letter to Hebrews was written to encourage Christians in a time of trial. It does so by focusing on the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. While God spoke in the past many times and in many ways, he has now spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of God's nature and who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus accomplished complete salvation for all who trust in him. You know, what stands out to me in this little introduction that my Bible gives is this book is written to the Christians in time of what? Trial. This is when they were facing hardships. And in order to counter the hardships that they were facing, the book focuses on two things. It focuses on, number one, the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ, and number two, the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? A people that were in the midst of trial and the author who's unknown, the author of Hebrews says, this is what you need. If you're facing trial, this is what I have to give to you. It's words that are going to prove that Jesus is absolutely supreme. That means he's divine in nature because a lot of people would argue he's just a man. Oh, he's a good prophet. He was a good teacher. The book of Hebrews is trying to show that Jesus was indeed the son of God, divine, supreme. And the second thing that needs to be focused on is is absolute sufficiency, meaning that all things that needed to be done was done through Jesus. He was sufficient, meaning our price that we had to pay for our sins, he paid in fullness. Meaning there's no room for extra debt. There's no room for doubt. He paid it all. He did what needed to be done in order for you and I to be able to become Christians. Two things. It's funny. In in times of trials, it wasn't about focusing on yourself. It wasn't even about focusing on your circumstance. 
the author of Hebrews thought it was so important in trial to focus on who Jesus was. So the first nine chapters, actually the first ten chapters of Hebrews is just going at it. Who Jesus is, the supremacy of God's son, warning against neglecting salvation. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus, the great high priest, warning against apostasy, certainty of God's promise, priestly order of Melchizedek. Jesus compared to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest found in the Old Testament. He's the only example of a king and a priest in one. Usually you were just a priest if you were born under the Levite line, or you were a king, but there's only one who was both king and priest in the Old Testament, and that was King Melchizedek. And Jesus was taught, uh, shown that he was in line of the order of King Melchizedek, meaning Jesus is also king and priest. Okay. Uh, chapter 8 talks about Jesus, the high priest of a better covenant. Chapter 9, the earthly holy place redemption through the blood of Christ. And chapter 10, Christ's sacrifice once and for all. And here we get to our passage, which is titled in my Bible, The Full Assurance of Faith. So here it's going on and on and on. Chapters 1 to 10, who Jesus is. He's the man. He's the man. He's the man. He's the man. He's the God. He's the God. He's the God. He paid it all. He did it all. He's God's son. And then we get to chapter 10. And something interesting happens in this passage, verses 19 to 25. In fact, a lot of scholars call this point the turning point. Why? Because everything leading up to is talking about Jesus, but here in chapter 10 in this passage we just read, talks about the response we should have. So if Jesus is indeed all supreme and all sufficient, then what does that mean for you and I? What does that mean for us? And here in this passage is where the author begins to describe, this is how it affects you and how what your res- response should be. He basically leads into three specific exhortations. And I'm going to go over those things in a second, but I just want to mention that, you know, a lot of people look at the Bible and we generally try to dismiss most of the Old Testament as being irrelevant to our lives today. Because as Christians, we're not going out fighting literal wars today. Okay, kings don't literally exist anymore. Well, not in this country and not in a lot of countries, right? In some countries, there's still kings. But in terms of the Jewish mm, culture or the Israelites, which were considered the chosen people in the Old Testament, I mean, a lot's changed since then. So what, what could the Old Testament possibly mean or do for us? So generally, I remember when I first became Christian, I pretty much avoided the Old Testament because it bored me to death, and it's just a bunch of names and a bunch of wars and this and that and people I didn't know. So I always read the Gospels because I felt like the Gospels were applicable. Okay, here's a little story that applies to me. Or here's a little teaching and here's a little, you know, principle that I should follow. Yeah, New Testament makes a lot of sense, but I don't understand the Old Testament at all. Hebrews does an incredible job of connecting both the old and new. And in fact, it's a book that describes how the Old Testament is pretty much the foreshadow of the New Testament. Meaning, if you read the Old Testament in the lens of one that believes in Jesus Christ as the true Son of God, you will see that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Now, that's pretty insane. Okay, I just recently read The Hunger Games. Anybody read The Hunger Games? 
I'm the type to like be obsessed with books. So if I pick up a book like that, that's like an easy read. I just, I, I go nuts. So basically I read all three books in three days, one book each day. Okay. And I work. It's not like I'm a student. Like I have a job and I work, you know, 9.30 to 6.30 and I still manage to squeeze a whole book. And, you know, at night my husband was studying for a comprehensive exam. Uh, for his seminary degree, and I was sitting across from him. He's, you know, looking at all these theology books, whatever, and I'm with Hunger Games, you know, at Starbucks, like, so intense, and I just read right through that. And I wondered, man, okay, how long did it take for the author to write Hunger Games? I mean, imagine maybe a couple of year tops, right? But this is a, a sequence of books that makes sense from the first one to the second one to the third one. It's pretty much a story in chronological order that has a couple of different perspectives. I mean, it's really not that deep, you guys. It's a really light read. I'm painting it out like it's this deep book. No, it's not. It's a light read. It's a fun read. Uh, but it's still sequential, okay? It probably took her about three years to write this book, really catchy book, addictive book, and okay movie, all right? But here's the Bible which took about thousands of years to be written, not by just one person, but numerous authors contributed. Ultimately, God is the one and true author of Scripture, but he used numerous, I guess, writers that were under the influence of the Spirit to write Scripture, right? Over decades, generations, this Scripture was written. Yet, if you read it in its entirety from front to cover, it all makes sense. In fact, not only does it make sense, but if you look in the Old Testament, the things that were written, the first passages of Scripture that were written all point to the last couple of passages that were written. From Genesis to Revelation, how does that happen? The author of The Hunger Games is one person who had one story in mind. But for a book that was written by a bunch of different authors, how could that happen unless it was divinely done by one author not by man, but by God himself. And all the Old New, Old Testament has very much to do with this New Testament, is what I'm trying to say. Okay, So I'm just going to explain that a little bit more as we dig into the scripture. Now stay with me, because SNU is known to be the sleepy campus. I don't know if you guys know you have that reputation. But out of all the campuses I preach at, this campus is the one where people pass out the most. And I know it's not because of my messages, because I'm a good preacher, all right? You know, and every other mess, you know, every other campus people awake. But SNU, for some reason, I don't know if they work you too hard. Okay, I don't know if it's the air in the room, but people get tired. Okay, so I'm about to go into the meat of the message, and you guys all need to stay awake. So turn to your neighbor and say, you better stay awake for this. It's a small enough crowd where I will call you out in love. I'm not going to call you out. I'm playing. All right, so we're going to point to what this turning point is saying, okay? Everything is talking about who Jesus is. Now we're going to see what this author has to say. His tone of voice changes, and it starts with, therefore, brothers, okay? Now he's addressing you and I as fellow people. I mean, he later says we. So his tone of voice changes initially in the beginning. It's kind of like just straight teaching. But now it's kind of like, all right, all this to say this. Therefore, when you see the word therefore, you probably need to pay attention to what's just been talked about, right? Well, the beginning of chapter 10 and chapter 9, it specifically talks about how Jesus paid the price for us. 
And this sacrifice was once and for all. The reason why that's important is because back in the day, when you talk about the cleansing of sins, it was a yearly routine, meaning there was a great high priest who would go into the temple on your behalf, on my behalf, go through all these different sacraments, go through all this cleansing process and go through three different sections of the temple, finally make his way into the final place, which was the Holy of Holies, in order to make a sacrifice for our sin. Now, the previous chapters are talking about, this was a yearly thing in the Old Testament, but the previous chapters are talking about when Jesus died, it was once and for all, meaning it's a done deal. Okay? So therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. I'm going to stop here. Since we have confidence, another word for confidence could be authority. Since we have authority to enter, where? It says the holy places. What they're referring to is the holy of holies. So back in the day in the temple, remember I told you the Old Testament is very much relevant. In fact, if you look at chapter 10, the first verse or two verses says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form, of these realities. It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Basically what this passage is saying that everything in the New Testament is a shadow. You guys ever read a good book? A good story always has good foreshadowing. Foreshadowing basically means you're going to you're about to you get a hint of what's going to happen at the end. Okay, a good foreshadow. Well, here in the Old Testament, everything in terms of the setup of the temple, setup of the tabernacle, all of that is a foreshadow. It's just simply a replica of what was supposed to come, which, like I said, was the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. So the Holy of Holies in the temple is pretty much where the presence of God was. Okay, there was the holy and then there was like the holy of holies. The holy wasn't the presence of God wasn't there. Then there was the outer courts of the temple. The presence of God wasn't there. Each step you had to do a couple of different, you know, I guess, sacrifices or cleansing or lighting of lamps or whatever it is. You have different steps you have to take to get to the next section from the outer court to the inner court to the holy place to the most holy of holies. But the holy of holies, this is where the presence of God was. This is where God's actual manifest presence was. This is the only way that the people can actually come in contact with God's presence. Now you and I are spoiled. Okay, we can, we can sing songs and worship and we can feel the presence of God. Back in the Old Testament, the presence of God wasn't available to everybody like that. It was available only for key people, leaders, that God specifically chosen to lead a whole people group. That's where the presence of God was. And the Holy of Holies was this specific place. So if you read it in that context, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have authority to enter the presence of God, now, when I think authority, I think, like, code, key. You know, there's certain places if you go to, like, government offices. Like, my brother, he works for the Pentagon, okay? Actually, in the Pentagon, I don't know what department. I honestly don't know what my brother does. And you know what? I don't even know if he's supposed to tell me. And actually, I don't know if I was supposed to tell you. But he works for the Pentagon. And there's certain areas in the Pentagon, I'm sure, that's restricted by the level of authority you have. 
So maybe he can get into some room with his fingerprint or whatever they do or eyeball scan. You know, I watch too many movies, but I'm sure they do things like that, right? But then I'm sure there are other places that are restricted that only the highest level of authorities could go into. Okay. You need a certain code. You need a certain level of, of rank. You need a certain identity to be able to access certain things. Okay. Or for example, you need a key in order to get through a locked door. This is the description that this author is trying to give. The presence of God was locked up. Meaning it, we did not have access to the presence of God before Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for us. We didn't have access to it. Only specific people had access to it, but you and I, the everyday people, did not have access to it. <laughs> Chris, <laughs> you better stay awake, boy. He's like, I'll get on my phone. <laughs> you know, I tell this story a lot, but when I was little, I was, well, not, not even when I was little. I'm still a candy fiend. Like, I love sugar. And I love telling this story because it just shows how clever I am. But my brother, he's five years older, and he had this drawer that was like his sacred drawer, meaning it was like where he put all his private stuff. So his letters from friends, I mean, I doubt he had letters from girls, but I would know. I'd read them all. Um, letters from friends, uh, candy from like Halloween. He used to save, like I would eat it all the next week, within the week. He would save it for like years, you know. And um, he was a really patient, disciplined sort of person. I'm the complete opposite. And like all his prized possessions, like different toys or different things were in this drawer. So I always wanted to get in the drawer. Why? Not because of the letters, although those were interesting. And not because of the toys, because, you know, I wasn't into all that. It was because of the candy and or money. I was a little thief when I was a little kid. For real, I was, I mean, that continued on when I got older. But that's a different story. And so in order to get to this little special drawer of my older brother, you needed a key. Okay. Now, when I was little, I thought I was like MacGyver. I don't even know if you guys know who he is, but okay, that's great. Um, and instead of trying to use the key, I used to try to stick a paper clip. You know, unbend a paper clip, and then I would get like a nail. I would just like stuff all sorts of things in there and try to twist it and open it. So to this day, that set of drawers is in my current house. Uh, we're renting it out. My family's renting it out. But And around the key lock is like carved. Like It's just carved in because of like different things I put in there. It's like all jacked up, right? So I tried all sorts of things to get that drawer open, and it wouldn't. And I realized there's no way to get into this drawer unless you have the key. So then my mind, you know, my plan changed. And then all of a sudden, I just became obsessed with finding the key. And I, without fail, would always find the key that my brother would hide. Now, he would hide it in all sorts of places, in trophy cups. Easy, right? And then he got a little bit smarter and would hide it in, you know, in his clothes, in the drawer, you know? Yeah, but I would find that easy, right? Just weird nicks and crannies. I would always find it. And probably the most weirdest place he hid, well, not weirdest, but I thought the most clever, and I still don't know how I found it, was in the pages of a book in a huge bookshelf. How did I know which book? How did I even think to open books and start flipping through them? I don't know what happened. I think it was like a supernatural gift or something. And I was just like, you. And I just flipped it, and the key would fall, and I would take the key, and I would get forbidden access into this jar, and I'd pretty much eat my brother's candy. 
And then he would realize candy's gone, and then he would hide the key in another place. Anyway, that's that's what happened. But you needed the key to access the jar. It was this, for me, in that story, it's a pretty bad example because I didn't have the right authority to do that. I pretty much broke in. But when it comes to God's presence, you can't just break in. Okay, there's no other way except through Christ. Okay, you know that Bible verse, he is the truth, the way, and the life. There's no other way. Now, you might learn in your classes, oh, there's many ways up the mountain. Oh, you can travel this path, and one path is Buddhism, and one path is, you know, Taoism, and one path is Hinduism, and one path is Christianity. Oh, it's it's all just different paths, but we're climbing the same mountain. No, wrong. That's not what we believe here. There's only one path because there's only one person because there's only one man who's not only man but fully God who's been able to give us complete access and authority to the presence. That's just who God ordained. It was his son, Jesus Christ. He represents the key. Now it talks about the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. The thing that separated the holy of holies from the holy was a curtain. Now, when you think curtain, you might think flimsy shower curtain, but this curtain was thick and it was embroidered and the way that it was made was like, it was hardcore. It wasn't like, you know what I mean? Like it was like a wall of fabric that separated these two sections. And this curtain, it said when Jesus died on the cross, and gave his final breath. In the gospel accounts, it's described where the curtain was torn. Meaning that block between you and I from that presence of God was torn away. Now what's interesting is this Hebrew author says that Jesus was a curtain that was torn. Meaning it was his own body that represented the curtain that was torn, that was destroyed, that was dead. In order for what? What is this all pointing back to? To be in the presence of God. And then continues, verse 21, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All right, let's talk about what we have to do. Here's described, okay, so we have this authority for the presence of God. That's great. What does that even mean? You know, how does that apply to me? How, how am I supposed to respond to this? Or what if I don't even believe that Jesus is the one true way? What, what, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do here. Well, here's three exhortations that are simply the same exhortations I want to give you guys in the beginning of this semester. Three things that I want you guys to hold fast, hold to for the next couple of months because I believe that these three things represent a huge key for your personal breakthrough. Whether that means coming to know who Jesus is, whether that means drawing closer to him, whether that means getting stronger in your faith or Whatever it may mean for you, these are three exhortations I want to really encourage you in. The first one says this, let us draw near. Now, in the NIV version, it says, let us draw near to God. It doesn't explicitly explicitly say God here in this ESV version. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's just implied. But this first drawing near is drawing near to the Lord. Okay. 
Now, remember, the Holy of Holies represents the presence of God. So when you're talking about drawing near, you're talking about drawing near to God's presence. Now, I know for some of you guys, it's still obscure. What does that mean, drawing near to God's presence? Well, a couple of examples of drawing near to God's presence is simply receiving the invitation. You know, if Rona's sitting over there, and I know Rona, she's her the, her door is always open. She always wants me near. In fact, she always wants all of you guys near. Okay, she is just a loving person who is not afraid of physical touch. Okay, um, even though it scares many other people, but for her, it's one of her love languages. But if she's giving me the invitation, hey, PE, draw near. Go ahead, just tell me to draw near, Rona. As I like book it to the other side, she can say draw near all she wants. She can shout it. She can sing it. She can rap it. She can write it on her shirt. She can tattoo it on her forehead. But for me to draw near takes what? It takes me to walk towards her and to sit next to her and to be beside her. There is an element where God is after you, where you have to understand that. Scripture says that he first loved you. So this idea of us drawing near, you got to have the right premise. The right context is he first drew near to us. How do we know that? How do we know that? He sent his son to become a man. That's him drawing near. You understand? This is the almighty God. He made himself manifest in our bodies in our world, in our flesh, in order to draw near to us. So that's his step toward us. That's his commitment towards drawing near to us. He made himself like a man. That's humble. This is the almighty God. He was born in a manger. Okay, he took a likeness of a a baby, born in a farm or wherever it was, feeding place. This is him drawing near to us. So let's get this straight. He first started it, okay? He first started it. But because he did, now we have this invitation of drawing near in response. And this part, this part is up to you and me. If you want to experience the presence of God, but you want to stay where you are, don't come to me asking why you don't feel God's presence. You don't want to move? I don't know why I can't feel Rona's arms around me. Maybe because you're sitting five feet away from her and you won't get up and walk towards her. So then what does it mean to draw near to God? Because if he's not a physical being right now, we're not like, you know, I'm not saying fly in an airplane and go closer to the heavens because then you're drawing closer to the Lord. No, you can draw near to the presence of God simply through ways where his presence exists. Worship. Worship is an example of drawing near. Well, prayer reading scripture, I don't know, even just acknowledging him on a daily basis. When you acknowledge God, you exist, you're alive, you're drawing near to him. You know, I remember I was at Yonsei and I was getting ready to preach and I was kind of stressed out and I forget where I was. I think I was in the cafeteria and I was like, God, I I know that you're with me. I know that you're with me, but I just want to draw near to you. I just want to draw near to you. And as I said that, I remember looking up And I never look at the ceiling. I mean, I don't know if you guys ever walk around looking up, but I don't look up. But at that moment, I just looked up at the ceiling. And in the middle of the ceiling of the room that I was in was a playing card stuck on the ceiling. I don't even know how it got up there. 
And out of all the cards, guess which card it was? It was the king of hearts. I remember looking at the card, and for many of you guys, it's like, what? But for me, I knew right away. It was God just saying, well, guess what? I'm already here with you. When you acknowledge God, even the smallest details like that become meaningful for you. My faith is not based on cards on ceilings, okay? But I am saying that my spiritual life is filled with all sorts of interesting things where I relate to God in all sorts of ways, not just through prayer or reading the Bible, which is absolutely critical, but even daily walking to the subway, I can acknowledge that God is with me. You and I can live a life like that, but too often the only time we step into God's presence or the only time we draw near is when we come to large group. The only time we draw near is when we go to Sunday service. I'm talking about living a life where you constantly draw near. Constantly draw near to God. I mean, what's the benefit of that? In his presence, there's fullness of joy, scripture says. There's peace. Have you ever felt stressed out or anxious and all of a sudden you step into worship and for, you just don't know how, but that fear just melts away? You're like, what just happened? I was just so, str- five minutes ago, I was just so stressed out. It's the presence of God that comes and it just aligns your heart. You know, have you ever read, uh, get ready to do your QT and you're like depressed and all of a sudden you read a passage of scripture and just reading that scripture just sets you free and you walk away from your time with just reading one chapter of words and it's completely different. You're completely different. How does that happen with just words? It's because it's his presence because this is living and active. Why should we draw near? Why not? This is true life. You know, a lot of things that you guys fall into in terms of sin is based on desire. Okay, let's be real here. And the thing about desire that a lot of Christians get wrong is we tend to pin desire as sinful. The fact that you want that is sinful. But I want to correct that. Because desire is all rooted The desire itself may not be the best desire, but that desire is rooted in a true desire that God's given you. For example, if you have a desire to be famous, well, I'm going to go on K-pop star or superstar K. I was watching that the other day, and yeah, it's a new season. It's really fun. And, you know, these people that are dying to be famous, and, you know, I'm not saying that that desire is necessarily evil, but I believe that there's a deeper desire in there that God placed inside of them, which is to do something significant. There's so much that we change, we shortchange our desires and we try to fulfill it in ways that are unsatisfying. Why should we draw near is because he satisfies and he's the only one that satisfies. You know, all my life, I tried to satiate my desires. I mean, for heaven's sake, I would go roam through my brother's room for three hours to find a key to eat a piece of candy. You know, that's a girl on a mission. All right? So you can imagine when I had other desires, I mean, I went after it and nothing stopped me. It was a perfect picture of what my life, it was a foreshadow. 
of what my life was going to be, an unfortunate one, which is me breaking in and doing things I wasn't supposed to do in order to satisfy my desires. I lived my life like that. In sin, continuous sin, trying to satisfy my desire to be known, my desire to be enjoyed, my desire to be loved. All these things that are actually good, deep desires that God put inside of you, I try to satisfy in ways that were short-lived. I became promiscuous. I started doing drugs. Listen, here's the thing. Okay, I did ecstasy. Okay, ecstasy is a drug that a lot of people relate to, like the love drug, which I find is completely ironic because out of all the drugs i feel like ecstasy is one of the most um like like you know fake bags people have fake bags right so like i grew up in new york so you have chinatown and if you go to chinatown you can get a fake gucci bag for like twenty dollars okay so it the better the best gucci or fake gucci bags the the higher the price okay so there was different levels of i guess what 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 am i trying to different levels of like bootlegging or counterfeit. There's different levels of counterfeit. Ecstasy is probably one of the highest level of counterfeit that I found to true fellowship. And it's funny because I remember even going, taking ecstasy. I was with a girl who took ecstasy for the first time and we were in a club and the DJ, everyone's facing the DJ. It was straight up church service, okay? Everyone's facing the DJ with their arms lifted up high, dancing, you know? And and I'm I'm looking at this girl and she, the drug starts to hit her and she looks out in the crowd and then she looks at me and she goes, "This is this must be heaven. I feel like I'm in heaven." She saw this huge worship scene, and the first thing she thought she was a Christian by the way, a backslidden one obviously, as was I then. And the first scene that pops into her mind was, "This is heaven." And the emotion that you feel is love. Oh, Johnny, I love you. Seriously? You're like my best friend. And I just, I need you to know that I love you. You know, like, it's just like all night. It's just love and connecting with people. It was my favorite thing to do when I was rolling on XC was just talking to strangers and feeling like they were like connected with me. You know, when I became a Christian, my first experience, one of the first things I thought was ecstasy is better. Meaning the pleasure I had from drugs was greater than the level of pleasure I was getting from my experience with God. Isn't that interesting? And it wasn't because God's pleasure or what we can find in the Lord is inferior. It was simply because I didn't know how to draw near. I was complaining how, man, this life is way better because I was standing so far from where I knew I was supposed to be, where I knew I could go in and get access to the very presence of God. Let us draw near with a true heart. That's another word for sincere. In full assurance of our faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. One of the reasons why we don't draw near is because we think that we are filled with guilt, dirt, shame. I can't draw near because you know what I did, Lord. I can't come to the large group service because then everybody will look at me and know how I've been struggling. 
I can't draw near and pick up my Bible because if I do, everything the Bible says I'm supposed to be doing, I don't do. So it makes me feel guilty. Or I can't draw near to, you know, to the presence of God through worship because when I, as soon as I start to worship, all of a sudden I get flashbacks of, of things that I shouldn't have done. Whatever it may be, shame blocks us from drawing near. In fact, isn't that what happened to Adam and Eve? When Adam and Eve first sinned, the first thing that they did was cover themselves because they were embarrassed and what? Ashamed. And the second thing that they did was hide, isolate. Did they draw near? No, they did the exact opposite. They drew away. Why? Because they were filled with shame. And this is where the latter half of this verse, you and I have to hold fast to. It says, our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What does that mean? Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verse... Eighteen to twenty-two. I'm going to read that for you guys. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, "This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you." And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood is very significant in scripture. This is why Jesus needed to die on the cross. This is why his blood needed to be shed. It's because what it says in verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You and I are purified were made clean through the blood of Christ. So the latter half of this draw near is don't forget, our hearts are sprinkled clean. Not by what you've done, not by your sacrifices, not by your QTs, not by your prayer, not by the worship, not by whatever, but simply by the blood of Jesus Christ that has sprinkled over you. It has purified you. And it says bodies washed with pure water. You know, what that parallels is back in the day when Aaron and um, his sons were, I guess, inaugurated into priesthood, the way that the ceremony that it took was, this sounds really gross to me, but this is what they had to do, was they would get splattered with blood. Someone would kill an animal and take the blood. Can you imagine just me, you know, on these beautiful golden pants, you know, just <laughs> splattering, just all over Johnny McCartney from head to toe, splattering blood all over him. This was ceremonial. This was indicative of, remember, what Jesus was going to do. Everything's pointing to Christ. And after they splatter blood all over him in his white robe, they take the priest and then they wash him with pure water. And then they were clothed again with the right, what are these called? Ekod, Epod, Ekod. Ekbod, <laughs> Ekbod, Hodpod, you know. <laughs> um, 
and they were made priests. This was their uh, inauguration into priesthood. And in that same way, when you and I believe in who Jesus is, we're made into a priest ourselves. This is our call to become a priest. Now, I'm not talking about a pastor. I'm not talking about wearing the white and black collar. You know, I'm talking about the priesthood in the sense of someone who has access to the presence of God. Because back in the Old Testament, remember, only priests could do that. But in this day and age, you and I both have access to that. So the first one is let us draw near. Say that to your neighbor. Let us draw near. And the second exhortation is let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, a lot of times this is this verse right here is where a lot of us struggle. It's holding fast to what we actually believe. It's not just believing it for one moment. Oh, I believe in you, Lord, and I believe that you are with me, and I believe you have good plans for me. It's remaining in that place. It's holding fast in that place. This is where we tend to struggle. And the reason why we struggle often is twofold. One, we have doubt about who God is. We don't trust him. Okay. Or the second thing is we don't trust ourselves. Now, this is where I struggled a lot. Because when I started coming back to the Lord after just drugs, after sex, after, you know, stealing, after whatever lifestyle I was living, the person I could not trust was me. And I I tried time and time again, God, I'm going to change. I'm not going to do this again. I'm sorry. I repent. And then like the next day, someone's like, hey, you want to take a hit? And I'm like, okay. You know, and I would fall over and over and over again. And it just emblazed a discouragement and a lack of faith in myself that I can't do this. I can't live a Christian life. Because every time I try, I fall flat on my face. But scripture says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For you who promised is faithful. No, it says for he who promised is faithful. This holding fast has nothing to do with your own ability, but it has everything to do with what God can do. It's because he is faithful. My husband likes to give this example. You know, I don't know if you guys lived in an area where there's like a lake. I never have, so I'm going to completely make up this scenario. I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but um, I would imagine when wintertime comes and the lake freezes over, it's somewhat of a dangerous thing because you don't know how frozen the lake is. So if someone tells you, hey, Eugene, I want you to cross this frozen lake, you know, it's kind of like probably going to be a little bit nerve-wracking because who he, who knows which area might be a little bit thin. You know, you guys seen movies where people fall and then, ah, and, you know, they get hypothermia and then they got to get, you know, naked and then hold on somebody. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, it just, that's just what went in my mind, you know. Anyway, um, but here, here goes Eugene, and he starts crossing the lake. Now, let's say Eugene has all the faith in the world in himself to do this. At the end of the day, that's pretty much meaningless because his journey from one side to the other depends not on his ability to walk straight, but on the lake itself. Meaning you can have weak faith. He can be like, man, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. But if the lake is frozen strong, even if his faith is weak, 
he's going to get to the other side. Why? Because the lake is what we rely on. In the same way, our dependency on God needs to be illustrated in, the, in, in that picture. Too many times we think, okay, if we feel good about ourselves, or if we feel strong in ourselves, we can get to the other side. You got it all twisted. It's not about you. It's about the fact that the lake that we're walking on is strong. Why? Because it's God's promises we're banking on when we're holding fast. So even when you have weak faith, be encouraged. Why? Because what you have faith in is strong. I remember when I was dating my husband, he proposed. My parents were against it. And I had this dream. And in this dream, it was this whole adventure. And it's, I had to, all of a sudden I'm on this adventure and we get to this place where there's a huge dip. And it's one of those things that if you fling a coin, you know that there's no pit. There's no bottom. I don't know if you guys ever watched that movie. What's that movie? The King... No, it's like a really old, okay, I don't know, this is a really old movie, I'll figure it out, but um, it's just like an unending sort of pit. And I remember at this time, like, I was really struggling with my parents coming against this whole relationship. I mean, obviously, you don't want to call your mom and be like, oh, ma, I'm engaged, and then her saying, yeah! Huh? You, oh, I was going to say something bad. <laughs> You know, I didn't know half the things my mom said were curses until like later on. I was like, oh, that's a bad word. I got called that all the time. All right. So, you know, no one wants that experience. And so I was really struggling during this time. And I really felt like this was a dream that God gave me to encourage me. But I was in this pit. Many of you guys know this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. And I see this swing contraption. And I'm with a friend who at the time was like a really crucial person in my life. Her name was Isis. And... um I see her, we can't talk, but she sits on this swing. It's like an iron swing. Oh, I can't even talk. Oh, man. I sit on the swing, right? So she sits on this iron swing, and then there's like a handlebar, and she holds it, and she just starts like swinging. And it starts moving her across this like bottomless pit. So I was like, okay, I guess this is how you get across. So I sit in my swing, and I hold the handlebar, and I just start scooting. Right, And at some point, about one-third way in, the seat that I'm sitting on falls away. And now all of my weight, boom, oh, ow. <laughs> I worked out my triceps, guys, my triceps and my thighs. Anyway, all the weight falls on my arms. I don't know if you guys, uh, ladies, have you ever tried doing a pull-up? Yeah, I can't even do a pull-up like, I don't know, the other day our staff were doing pull-ups. You know, Eugene's all like, what? You know? <laughs> Like, what's so hard about this, you know? And all the girls like, ah! So I'm, I mean, I'm pathetic. With, I have no upper body strength. And so I'm, all of a sudden, when the seat goes, I'm left with my body weight weighing me down. And it's like my fingers are, like, slowly coming off the handlebar. And at this point, I thought to myself, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to fall in this pit, and I'm going to die. And then out of nowhere, I just felt this rush of faith come upon me. And I started speaking in tongues in my dream. And I started literally praying in tongues. And as I'm praying in tongues, it's like my spirit, you know, praying in tongues, if you guys aren't familiar with that, the reason why God gives us the gift of tongues is for us to be encouraged. So that's literally what happened. When I started praying in tongues, I felt encouragement flow through my body. And instead of saying, I'm going to die, I just had the faith. No, I'm going to get to the other side. 
And my tight, my uh, grip tightened, and I, my arms, I felt strength in them. And it was a strength beyond myself. And all of a sudden, without the seat, I'm like swinging, you know, I'm like swinging over. And then right before I get to the other side, the seat comes, and then I, you know, scoot, and I get to the other side. Now, when I ask the Lord, God, what does this dream mean? By the way, you should pay attention to your dreams because I bet if you do, you'll realize that God tries to speak to you in your dreams. A lot of times you don't pay attention to him during the day, so he tries to get you to pay attention in your dreams. This is a true story. So if you guys get weird dreams, you should talk to your leaders because sometimes they can mean something significant. Sometimes they are just ridiculous, and it's because you ate McDonald's at, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning, you know. It's without fail, if I eat McDonald's past midnight, I will get strange dreams. And they're not of the Lord. It's like, I don't know what's in the chemical. But when I asked the Lord, God, what does this dream mean? He showed me that the seat represented my family, the support that I'm used to. So sitting is comfortable. And the handlebar represented the, represented the promises of God that I was holding on to. And as I was journeying, the other side obviously meant my marriage. And so as I was going across this bottomless pit, a.k.a. a trial or a test that I was facing, all of a sudden my family support leaves and all I'm left is with God's promises. And in the moment where I'm just left with God's promises, who weighs what down? It's me, myself. My flesh begins to weigh me down. And it's my own doubt of I'm not going to be able to do this. Why? Because what did I trust in that moment? My own strength. Right now, I know that I got no arm strength, so I'm probably going to die. That was my logic, for real, when I was going through this dream. I can't do this. I can't do this. But immediately when I started praying in tongues in my dream, I began to shift into not believing in my arm strength, but believing in the promises of God. And that's when my grip tightened around that handlebar, and I knew, no, I'm going to get to the other side. Not because of me, but because the Lord said so. And I get to the other side, and right before the seat comes, which represents my family ended up supporting right before we got married, and they came to the wedding. They're totally happy. My mom loves Christian more than me. All is well, all right? And so we get to the other, I get to the other side. So does my friend in the dream. But in the same way, you and I are called to hold fast. Not, you won't have the seat all the time. In fact, a lot of trials that you're going to go through is that seat coming under you. The things that you naturally bank on, your studies, your grades, your family, your comfort, your home, your finances. These are things that I call the iron seat. Things that we, circumstantial things. And we find our comfort and our rest. And a lot of times, you and I, we spend a lot of time securing that seat. Well, let me, let me put a lot of effort in making sure that this seat is looking real nice. I got a little cushion over it. I'm, I'm going to make it nice and shiny. I'm going to make that seat platinum. Whatever it is, we pay all attention to the seat, but it's not the seat that's going to get you through to the other side. It is the promises of God. Because that seat's going to come and go. You're going to go through seasons where things that you thought were your strength are going to be gone. And God purposely does that. Why? Because he's trying to teach you to hold fast to him. So he's going to take the things that used to just be chill. This is as far as I could go. The, the things that used to be chilling on. The things that you used to just have comfort in. This is what makes me feel safe and secure. And he's going to take that away from you. Why? Because he's going to show you I'm enough. I'm more than enough. Remember, this is written to Christians who are going through trial. And we're constantly going to go through trial. It's, Christianity is not happy, 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 
hey, hey, ho, ho, all the time. I don't know where that came from. I don't know where that chant was from, but, you know, the Christian life is not all dandy all the time. In fact, a lot of reasons why people leave or try to walk away is because they're like, what? I thought this was supposed to be good. I thought this was supposed to be easy. And the first moment you hit a trial or a tribulation, you want to walk away. But Christian life is going to be filled with suffering. This is true. And it's going to be filled with trials and it's going to be filled with things that are going to make you uncomfortable. But one thing is for sure, when you draw near to the Lord and when you hold fast to his promises, you will get to the other side. That trouble is momentary. Your affliction is momentary. The all-knowing, all-surpassing pleasure we have in God, eternal. So let us draw near Let us hold fast. And the last one is, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 25 says this, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is key right here. In fact, I just spent a lot of time talking about the other stuff. But if I want you to walk away with one thing, it's this is one of the things I want you guys to remember. Is not neglecting to meet together. This is what it means to let us consider. Let us consider could also mean let us, mm, what did I write here? Let us be concerned for. Let us care for. Your relationship with God is not just about you and God. If you thought that, you need to read your Bible again. Because your relationship with God also is inclusive with your relationship with people. If you have a bad relationship with your neighbor, you have not completed your ability to love and worship the Lord. In fact, at times God says, if you have beef with someone before you lay down your sacrifice, go back. And make peace with that person. And then I will receive your offering. This is how important. That's why it's love God with all your heart, mind, soul. And love one another. It's always prefaced together. A lot of people want to think, well, it's just me and God. It's me and God. It's me and God. No, it's not just you and God. It's you and God and the people around you. It's you, God, your community. It's you, God, your neighbor. It's you, God, and even your enemies. How you treat other people, how you relate to other people is all indicative of how you see the Lord. What you believe about him. So if you have beef with someone, guess what? It's going to affect your relationship with God. It's not separate. It's together. It's intertwined. And you'll notice that when someone drives you crazy, you know, it's hard to connect with the Lord. It's like the last thing you want to do is like read your Bible about it, you know? It's like, dang, Chris, man, seriously? Again? Seriously, Chris? You know, like when you're in that place, connecting with God as love or, oh, Jesus, you're so great. It's hard to do. I mean, that's what you need to do in order to help. Chris, I forgive you. I forgive you. Gracious. But it's all intertwined. And here, to let us consider, it means meeting together. 
So this last exhortation, the first one is to draw near to God. The second one, second one is to hold to his promises. But this third one has to do with others. It's meet with other people. Don't give up on this. Don't neglect this. Why did the author Hebrews feel it's absolutely necessary to bring this up? Why? Because people were neglecting this. And the reason why people were neglecting this in this time was probably because of persecution. Probably because it was such a high risk to gather together with a bunch of believers because they were getting persecuted daily. But for us, why do we neglect for meeting with meeting with one another? Probably apathy. Maybe a cold heart towards God. Laziness. I don't know, other priorities. But this is a word that I believe you guys need to hear. It's don't neglect this. Do not neglect your familia. Do not neglect this large group. Do not neglect the church service that you're committed to. Do not neglect the gathering of believers together because you can't properly love someone with an unconditional love unless you're committed to them. You can't tell me you know about loving people like God loves people if you don't want to see them every week. Oh, yeah, I can love the homeless person. That's great. You can feed a billion homeless people. But if you're not committed to somebody, you don't know what love is. You can hand out drinks and you can hand out money, but you don't know love unless you're committed to somebody. You know why? Because when you're committed to someone, then you have to go through the trials of them driving you crazy. Then you have to go through the trials of of rubbing differences and all of a sudden seeing weaknesses in them and having to believe the best for them or having to stand with them when they're going through hard times. This is not easy stuff. This kind of love can only be done inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God's love himself. But it's easy to have a distant connection with people. It's easy to come here. And you know what? You can come to large group, but I'm talking about being present here. You can come here every Tuesday night, but if you're falling asleep, might as well don't show up. You can come here every Tuesday night. You can listen to the message. Oh, that was a good word. But your walls are up. And so when people try to get to know you, you're like, chill, I got to go. You're disconnecting. This purpose is not just to get a good sermon. It's not about singing some songs. This is also about fellowship with one another, which means commitment to one another, which means vulnerability, transparency, letting down your walls with one another. You can't do this third exhortation unless you do those things. And I'm telling you, if there's a safe place, it's this, this place. You will learn, you can, you know what, if you feel uncomfortable about being vulnerable, then put other people to the test. Because if you talk to a student leader or one of my staff and you say, listen, tell me the worst thing you've ever done in your life, they will tell you. Or Rona, what was the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to you? She will share with you. Or Rona, what's one of the greatest sins you've ever committed? She will share. Why? Because that's not who she is anymore. There is no more shame or condemnation. She knows that she's a new creation. So she will be the first one to be vulnerable, transparent with you guys. In order so that you would feel safe to be vulnerable and transparent with her. You're only going to get so much coming out here. Come out here all Tuesday, but don't open up about the things that you're struggling with. Come out to every single familiar, but don't share about the doubts you have about certain things you guys just read in scripture. And I'm going to keep my mouth shut because if I, if I tell people that I'm struggling with that, they're going to judge me. 
If that's your attitude and your mindset, your ability to go deeper in intimacy, not only with them, but with the Lord, is going to be stifled. Scratching. Scratching the surface. I think it's Piper that says, when you rake, you get leaves, but when you dig, you find treasure. And too many of us, we live our lives just raking. And we wonder why we're dissatisfied. And we wonder why, you know, large group isn't as good as it used to be or why familiars don't just cut it. It's because we're just letting people rake in our lives and we rake the scripture and we rake one another, but we're not digging. We're not allowing, we're not giving people authority or access to draw near to us. The first one is to draw near to God. This third exhortation is about drawing near to one another. That's both spiritually, emotionally, physically, but also just, I just said it, physically, in the flesh, you got to physically be near one another in order to do that. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. This is how I know when someone has matured in their faith is when they learned how to stop just thinking about themselves. What am I going to get out of Tuesday large group? What am I going to get out of familia? If that's your only attitude, it's a good one to start with because it's a heart of expectation. I'm not bashing that. That's a good place to start, but I'm not, I'm just want to tell you that's not the whole picture. The whole picture is when you begin to say, not only what am I going to get out of this is what can I do? What can I pour out in the person next to me? Now, I got to go to familiar because I know that Chungmi's struggling. And I know that she's got a bunch of exams. And I know that she needs my support. So I'm, I got to go. When you start having that kind of attitude, you know that you begin to step into another dimension of God's love, another dimension of intimacy. That's the, that's the vision that I want to have for you guys, where it's beyond just you. Because thinking about just yourself is boring. It's going to get old. And frankly, it's only going to lead to greater dissatisfaction. And it's going to lead to just feeling jealous of other people or feeling lack or whatever it may be. But when you begin to engage and invest in other people, you will find a whole nother level of joy, a whole nother level of pleasure. You know, one thing that I love about Christmas is watching other people open the gifts I bought for them. Like, I love getting gifts. Gifts is one of my top love languages. If it's small, big, whatever, you know, I would tell you my birthday, but it's not your semester, so I'll tell you next semester. But I love gifts. I love presents. But one thing that I really, really, really love is when I know I got someone, like, a good gift, you know, and I just, I can't wait. Like, I'm not the type to be like, hey, open it later, you know, and just like, enjoy, open it later and walk away. I'm like, open it now. Open it now. No, 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 do it in front of me. I got to go. So you got to do it right now. I just want to see their face. I want to see their face when they open it. I just want to see the pleasure that they get from just the gift I've given them. It just, it's awesome. You know, there's one thing, an extreme pleasure that I felt when I received Christ. Nothing can compare to that. But can I tell you, when I led someone to Christ for the first time, what that was like for me? Man, it was one thing to get my own healing and deliverance, where God broke lies off of me. It was one thing. That was one level of pleasure and joy. But it was a whole nother level when I led someone else's session and I began to speak the same Bible verses that were spoken over me and I began to break the lies that were broken over me and I helped set someone free through the grace of God. That's a whole nother level. 
This is a dimension that I want you guys to experience. It's a love and a joy I want you guys to know, but it can't happen unless we meet together. Here's this book. It's the book of faith. It's the book of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And the three exhortations that this author wants to give us is simple. Draw near. Draw near to the Lord. Why? Because we have authority. Why do we have authority? Because our hearts have been sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. The second is hold fast to our confession. Hold fast, unwavering to the promises of God. This is not just hold fast to the confession of salvation. It's more than that. Hold fast to every promise in scripture. Hold fast to that. And the third is let us consider one another. These are three things I want to share with you guys that I believe God wants you to not just hear but to do. You know what scripture says about people that hear the word but don't do the word? The illustration of people who hear the word but don't do the word is someone looking at the mirror, seeing themselves, and walking away and forgetting what they look like. It's like, oh, there I am. Huh? What do I look like again? Why? Because it's only in scripture you know who you are. When you're not in scripture and you walk away, you're going to forget who you are. And I'm not talking about like, oh, I don't know my name and I don't know where I live. I'm talking about your true identity. I read scripture and I'm strengthened and I know that I'm more than a conqueror. If I don't look at scripture, I think I'm weak and I'm discouraged and I can't do it. This mentality is not me. It's someone who's forgotten who I really am. You understand what I'm saying? You got to read scripture. You got to hear scripture, but you got to obey scripture. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not here to give you guys a little show. I'm here to give you guys the word. And what you do with it, it's up to you. And how this semester is going to look, God is extending an invitation for you guys to go deeper. And even for the students that are reoccurring students, our student leaders, this applies to you guys as well. This applies to you, Johnny. All right? There's so much more that God wants you to experience. There's so much more that God wants you to know. There's so much more that God wants you to receive. But you're not going to tap into that unless you draw near, hold fast, and consider others. Okay, I want you guys to just bow your heads with me. Father, I just pray for this semester, and I pray specifically for the Seoul National University campus. And God, I pray for these students, whether they're students here or other universities, whether they're taking a break from school, those that are here at this campus, God, I pray, God, that you would allow your words to just be inscribed in their hearts. I pray, Father, that you would just plant these words in a soil that won't just hear it, rejoice in it, and then when trial hits, forget about it. But, Lord, hear it and obey it and do it and then produce a harvest of 30, 60, 100-fold. God, I just pray, Lord, 
that you would just bind every spirit of doubt. Doubt that they've been struggling with, maybe in who you are, your goodness, your faithfulness, your love for them, or even specifically your existence. I ask God that you would begin to just abolish doubt right now by the power of your spirit. God, even in in the book of Hebrews, it says you are the author and perfecter of our faith. And we just ask that faith be strengthened right now in this room. God, where faith is weak, where faith is even non-existent, I pray that you will begin to reveal yourself to your people, that we may in response draw near, that we may hold fast, that we may consider one another. God, I just declare that SNU is going to lay down another layer of foundation here on this campus. And God, you're calling them higher and you're calling them deeper. And God, I just pray, Lord, every mentality of futility of there's no point, every mentality of it's only going to go, it's as good as it gets. Lord, we just break that right now. And God, I just pray that you would just stir up excitement in our hearts. I pray that you begin to break down the walls that are built, that we've built. And God, that you will put in us a spirit of just vulnerability, a spirit of transparency. Give us faith to do that. It takes faith. It takes faith to be true. It takes faith to be real with ourselves and with one another. And I pray that you release that faith for honesty, that faith for transparency, God. Even in our struggles. Even in our doubt, I pray, God, that this would be a community, Father, where that's not defined by judgment, but it's defined by support. It's defined by encouragement. And, Lord, I pray for every single person that's facing a trial right now. And I ask, God, that the revelation that you are supreme and that you are sufficient come. I pray, Jesus, who you are and all that you are, the strength of the frozen lake that we're calling, called to cross, I pray, God, would begin to be revealed. And I pray, God, that even the weakness of our faith, God, that you would strengthen and encourage each and every single person here, God, to believe that it's by your faithfulness, Lord, that we are more than conquerors. And so, Lord, we just break the spirit of slumber off of SNU. And we declare that there's an awakening, God, that's happening on this campus. And, God, that you're awakening people to your love. And that you're going to awaken people to your spirit. You're going to awaken people to the pleasure and the joy that far surpasses any other thing that the world has to offer. God, our true satisfaction is found in you. And I pray that the longings and the desires of our heart, I pray, God, that we will find ourselves throwing it at your feet. God, satisfy us. Fill us. Cause us to draw near to you at the cost of drawing away from the things that we need to walk away from. I just pray even now your presence just be revealed, Lord. God, it's here. You're here. But, Lord, make us aware. God, we just bind any spirit of shame, any spirit of guilt. The voice of the accuser. God, I just take authority. And in your name, I silence all of the accusations coming against the students. And God, we just declare that today we remember that you first draw near to us. 
before we can even take a foot closer to you, God, may we remember you first drew near to us. It is you who first loved us. And so, Lord, set this large group apart. Set the familias apart that this will be a place where we don't neglect to meet one another and to come into your presence and to fellowship with you and with each other, Lord. We just pray that this would be a divine time. Yeah, and we just claim that for the rest of the semester. We just thank you for what you're doing. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.